open up to Job chapter 14. Job chapter 14. The title tonight is Job Speaks of Life's Troubles. Job Speaks of Life's Troubles. So if you don't have any, then you don't really have to listen. But uh, in this chapter, Job shares his feelings about some things in life. And it's a rather gloomy and negative section. And it, he's expressing his bummed out spirit that's been caused by all of his problems in life. And Job starts this section off by talking about his grief dealing with the common problem of all men. So let's begin with chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. And it says, Man who is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. Boy, there's nothing more true than that. Trouble is the common experience of all men and, and women. And so when I'm using the term all men, I am also including you know, women as well. So it's the common experience of all people. All of us have or had or will have problems in this life. It's a given. You know, that's one of those promises in the Bible that we don't highlight. It's the ones that, uh, one of the promises that we don't really like to remember. But problems are promised to us in Scripture. And I know you're familiar with John 16, 13. The wor- in the world you will have tribulation, Jesus said. Acts 14, 22, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. It must be expected that all who will go to heaven will experience tribulation and persecution on their way there. But, is this the way to validate the souls and to keep them busy in continuing the faith? Maybe that's what God has done, why he's given us tribulations and persecution. Because he said, those who endure to the end shall be saved. All right, those who endure, those who, who again, th- these things are going to validate our faith. It's real easy to walk with God and bless God when things are going well. But what really validates our soul is enduring through the tough times. And could that be why we go through them? God keeps us busy, you know, continuing in the faith. Now, you would think it would shock them instead, you know, that, that we're to endure difficulties and wear them out, causing them to give up. And to, for some, that it, it does. As a matter of fact, uh, it, it's, it's fairly stated here and accepted that it will help to validate their faith. And that they're for real and they're preparing for Christ to meet him. And it's true that they deal, they will deal with tribulation, with much tribulation, because it's been appointed to us. And we must go through it, and there's no way out. The matter has already been settled in heaven. It can't be changed. Our sovereign God, who rules over us, has determined it will be our lot in life. That all that will live godly in Christ Jesus should suffer persecution And God, who has the sovereign command over us, he has determined this to be our duty. 
that all that will be Christ's disciples must take up their cross. When we gave up our names to Jesus, when we gave our lives to Christ, it's what we agreed to. When we sat down and, cost, and counted the cost, if we knew what to expect, it was what we counted on. So that if tribulation and persecution came because of the word that we had already been told beforehand, it must be so. Because you see, God carries out everything that he has said in his word. God carries out everything that he has appointed for us. And the matter is unchangeably settled. We will go through tribulation. We will experience much tribulation in this life. It is the lot in life of the leaders as well as the soldiers in Christ's army. So you see, your own sufferings must not be a stumbling block to you. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 through 4, he said, No one should be shaken by these afflictions. For yourselves know, notice, that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation. Like Eliphaz said in Job chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Trouble is something the whole human race knows about. Now, Job complains that life is short. And it seems the older you get, the shorter life seems and the quicker it goes by. Job says here in verse 1 that our days are few. And he compares them to a flower and to a shadow and to a man. He says all humans are frail like a flower. They're all passing like a shadow and they're full of trouble like man. This is just simple humanity for everybody to see. Job doesn't see himself ever getting better in his situation. And many times when people are going through difficult times, they, they don't see themselves getting better. They don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. So he just figures, you know what? Let's just move on to the life after this one. And Job implies how fast a flower wilts there in the hot desert. That blowing wind causes them to dry out and they disappear. And then he adds that men's days are like a shadow. Short-lived. And soon disappears. It doesn't go on. James tells us, for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Now we all know this is a well-known truth. Life is short. And because it is it should cause us to make better use and, and make better decisions uh, in the days that we have left. In Psalm 90, verse 12, Moses says, Teach us to number our days. Notice that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It's not just counting how many days we have left. And that is, you know, it, it, they could be cut shorter. We don't know how many days we have left. The meaning of the prayer is that God would teach us to number our days as if today was our last, because it very could well be. We can't boast about tomorrow because all we know about is today. It could be our last. James said in James 4, 13 through 17, you talk about today or tomorrow, that we're going to, do, to go to a certain town and we're going to stay there a year. We'll do business there. We'll make a profit there. 
He says, you're boasting about your own plans and all this boasting is evil because you are not in charge of your life. The idea about God teaching us to number our days is that God would teach us seriously to meditate on and to think on or about the few days that we have left. They're like a shadow. That we may not desire to live here forever. And the troubles and the sorrows of them which may help us to let go of the world and to see how we've wasted those days. That might help us to start using our days better and to notice how good God has been and lead us in however many days we have left, which may lead some people to repentance and the wisdom of God. Job says our our days are few and full of trouble. And man, when we're going through troubles, it seems like our days are just full of them. It's true that you don't live long without many troubles coming into your life. Life has its ups and downs. No one lives a life that's trouble-free. No one escapes life's problems. Nobody's immune to life's problems. But problems aren't the end of life. And they're not as many as people would make them out to be. Look what he says in verse 3 now. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? He says, God, do you have to keep your eye on me? I'm such a frail creature and, and do you have to have such accountability of me? He says, as unimportant as we might seem to be, God won't let us get away with our sin. Verse 4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. And here's a proof of the fact that man can't save himself. Man cannot purify himself for salvation. Only Jesus Christ can cleanse us from our sins. The psalmist said in Psalm 49, 7 through 9, in the New Living Translation, he says, yet they cannot redeem themselves from death by paying a ransom to God. Redemption does not come so easily for no one can ever pay enough to live forever and never see the grave. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. First John 1, 7, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is the only one who can cleanse us and save us from our sins. Lady Powers Court, that's her real name, Powers Court. Lady Powers Court was was lying, dying in her castle. A friend who was on intimate terms with her came into her bedroom and said, How are you today, Lady Powers Court? She said, very well. Very well. I will tell you what I have been thinking of. I have been thinking that one needs a great many scriptures to live by. But one needs only one to die by. And what is that, your ladyship? The only scripture that a person needs to die by is this. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And that verse was sweeter, never sweeter to my soul than at that moment, she said. 
verse 5. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Job says here in verse 5 that as human beings, as a human being, he feels like he's boxed in. He's in a corner. David wrote in Psalm 23, 4, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, was David talking about his deathbed? No. From the minute, very minute we are born, we start our life walking through a valley where the shadow of death is on us. And we keep going until that valley gets narrower and narrower and it finally leads to death. We're always walking in the shadow of death. Someone has put it like this. The moment that gives us life begins to take it away from us. The minute we're born, we start to die. And Job sadly complains about the fact that our days have been determined as to how many we're going to live. And this is important to understand. God, in his infinite wisdom and purpose, has determined how many days or years each one of us is going to live. A sovereign God has predetermined predetermined how long we're going to live. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed, ordained, for men to die once. But after we die, then comes the judgment. And we will be judged based on our life here on earth. What did we do with Jesus Christ? Did we live for him? Did we reject him? But that's not something to complain about. Verse 5 assures us of three things. That our life will come to an end. And that our days are not numberless. They're not endless. They are numbered, and they will soon be over. Secondly, it's determined in the counsel and the decree of God how long we're going to live and when we shall die. When it says it's appointed for men to die once, you know, it's like you know, God knows when it's our time, and you know, he sends the angels and says, hey, today's the day. Go pick up Joe. His days are over. It's his time. The number of our months is is with God. The number of our months are under his control. And it's a sure thing that God's providence, that is the purpose and the will of God, has ordered the length of our lives. Our times are in his hand. And the powers of God and the powers of nature depend upon God. They move under God. In Acts it says, in him we live, we move, we have our being. You know what? Diseases are God's servants. What a timely moment for this message. In the midst of this pandemic. Diseases are his servants. And when you look at Many places in the, in the Old Testament, God sent diseases as a plague to judge his people. First Samuel 2, 6, it says, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. Understand, nothing happens by chance or accident or coincidence with God. 
Nothing is left to fate. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about fate. Listen to what he says. Fate says the thing is and must be, so it's decreed. But true doctrine says destiny has appointed this and that, not because it must be, but because it is best that it should be. Fate is blind, but the destiny of Scripture is full of eyes. Fate is stern and adamantine, which means unyielding. Has, it has no tears for human sorrow, but the arrangements of providence are kind and good. So it's a sure thing that God's foreknowledge has determined all things beforehand. God knows all things beforehand. And the boundaries that God has set, we can't pass over them. We can't change them because his counsels are unchangeable and his foreknowledge is perfect. Verse 6. Look away from him that he may rest till like a hired man he finishes his day. <coughs> so, God, so Job says here, leave us alone, God, and just let us rest. He says to God, we're like hired hands. Just let us finish our work in peace. In other words, Job wants God to leave him and leave him and all mankind alone until his and their days are up so they can spend all the time they've been given in peace before they die. Now, this might sound like an honorable thing to ask for, but it's not. Why? Because it... it, it looks like God's presence is a hindrance to a good life instead of a blessing. And a lot of people think it would be nice if God just disappeared, got out of their way, left them alone so that they could go on their wicked way and not be hassled or harassed. But they're making a big mistake by thinking that God's presence is a problem in life. Job's view of death is not the New Testament view. Job sees death as the end of everything, while the believer sees it as the beginning of the greatest blessing they've ever known, eternity. Job says a couple of things here about man's passing. Look at verses 7 through 9. For there is hope for a tree, if it is cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its tender shoots will not cease. Though its roots may grow old in the earth and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. Job says, when you cut down a tree, you have to pull out the stump. If you don't, the stump will grow. It'll grow roots. It'll sprout. The tree will come back. That's the way it is with a plant, with a tree. But what about man? Job's depression is mentioned here again. He says what he believes, but it's based on what he knows at the present moment, at that present time. Look at verses 10 through 14. He says, but man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. Notice, and where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. And here's the $64,000 question. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my heart service, I will wait till my change comes. Now, the book of Job is an old book. 
probably the oldest book in the Bible. Written at the time of the patriarchs, that is the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. When revelation, the revelation of God, had barely started to develop and be made known. You see, Job doesn't know a whole lot about the doctrine of of the resurrection. Job said that there was more hope for a tree that come alive than that was cut down than for a man. Job believes, according to verse 12, that when a man lies down, he doesn't rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake or be roused from their sleep. He's saying death is forever. Once dead, always dead. But of course, the believer believes in the resurrection of the dead for those who are saved. But Job's message here is clear. Though wrong, he says death to man is final. Understand that what Job writes here isn't meant to suggest that's all there is to know about the resur- about resurrection, what he said. We have a whole Bible with a lot more truth about the resurrection. The progressive revelation, that is, as the Bible continues to to give us revelation, we know a lot more about the final destinies of heaven and hell. But in Job's day, there were more questions than answers. That's why Job honestly asks, asks in verse 14, notice, if a man dies, shall he live again? If a man dies, shall he live again? But in the Old Testament, we can say, not true, Job. The New Testament answers Job's question. We're not in the dark about the subject of death. The gospel is the good news. And it talks about the forgiveness of man. And it explains the future of the redeemed man. Jesus said, he shall live again in John eleven twenty five. Forgiveness through Christ promises that the redeemed will live again. They have a resurrection experience waiting for them. But here's what you need to think about. Remember, Job asked, where is he? When you die, where will you live again? When you die, where will you live again? Will it be with the Lord? Or will it be away from the Lord forever? Will it be heaven or hell? Those are the only two places, the only two choices. Will it be eternal joy? Filled with joy and relief and the rewards waiting for God's people? Or will it be eternal judgment? Away from God and all of those things that you hold dear to. You are the only one who can decide where you will spend eternity. C.S. Lewis said this, There's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than the doctrine of hell if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. And if you choose to ignore this chance to receive this great hope, the salvation of Jesus Christ, the only other choice you will have will be horrible beyond your wildest dreams. Who wants a destiny like that? You don't have to go there. 
Verse 15. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. This message here. I'm sorry, let's, uh, verse 16. Uh, let's see. I'm sorry, verse 15. Yeah, you shall call and I will answer. You shall desire the work of your hands. God seeks the sinner to come to him for pardon. It says in verse 15, God's desire for the work of your hands. In other words, God's desire, that is for man's body, is truly great. For salvation. We learn in the New Testament that God so loved the world that he provided a way for man to be forgiven. That's the greatest passion of all. Verse 16. For now you number my steps, but you do not watch over my sin. The message here is that God does look into everything. Job says, God looks into everything that I do, and he knows all of my sin, and he's going to hold me accountable. He's going to hold me accountable. And the big danger is if you're not forgiven for your sins is that God's terrible punishment is on the sinner. Verse 17. He says, my transgression is sealed up in a bag and you cover my iniquity. I love that. Job is talking about God covering up our sins. Our sins that have been forgiven. And we're, when we're redeemed, our sins are removed. They're erased from our record as if they've never taken place. The psalmist says in Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. East and west can never meet up. And this is a symbolic picture of God's forgiveness. When God forgives our sin, he separates it from us and he doesn't even remember it. We don't ever have to wallow in the past because you see, God forgives and God forgets. We're the ones who seem to dig up the ugly past. We're the ones who seem to dig up the things that we've done in our past. But God has wiped them out. Our record is clean. If we're going to follow God, we have to follow his example of forgiveness. That is, when we forgive another, we have to also forget the sin. Or else, or else we haven't truly forgiven them. Notice what he says there. He says, their sins are sealed up in a bag. And they're covered. That means plastered over. This is the picture of a person's sins contained so that they'll never be brought back into judgment. In New Testament words, we would say, having our sins washed away. Job's prospects from his gloomy view of life, are mixed with some truth. He talks about the destruction of the earth, but he also talks about the destruction of expectation, that is, no hope. Now, the destruction of the earth is valid. That's going to take place. It's a valid thought, but not destruction of, of expectation. The psalmist said in 62.5, my soul waits silently for God alone. He says, for my expectation is from him. My expectation is from him. What David is saying here is that he's not making some wild prayer or some disrespectful statement. He's not demanding that God do anything. He's just saying, my expectation is from him. When I can't do anything else, you know what? I can expect something from God. 
David is expecting God to put it into his heart, the thing that he wants done. So he's praying for the thing that's best for him. My expectation is from him. This is, the, this is an illustration of what Paul had in mind when he said, pray without, pray without ceasing. When Paul said pray without ceasing, he didn't mean that, you know, we're to be on our knees uh, and stay on our knees 24 hours a day. But Paul did mean for you and I to get on our knees and pray and then live in the expectation of that prayer for 24 hours every day. For however how long it takes. The amazing thing is that this psalm has no prayer in it at all. But we find that the whole psalm is in the attitude of prayer. And that the psalmist is a man that's so committed to God that his life and his actions are that of prayer. The psalmist said in Psalm 5.3, My voice you shall hear in the morning. O Lord, in the morning I will direct it to you and will look up. I will look up what? With expectancy. He's praised. He looks up with expectancy. Where there is no expectation, there is no hope. Man, that would be a drag. To not expect anything from God, what hope do we have then? Verse 18. But as a mountain falls and crumbles away, and as a rock is moved from its place, the destruction of the earth is predicted in other places in the Bible very clearly. Peter said in 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night which the, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Verse 19, as water wears away stones and as tor torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. Job's negativity here caused him to grieve that there's no hope for man. He says it's like the water that wears away the stones and washes away the things that grow. Our hopes, he says, also are eventually crushed and come to nothing, Job says. Which is definitely not true. You see, that's man's view of things. Believers in Jesus Christ have a much better, brighter view. Why? Because in Christ we have great expectations. Warren Wiersbe said, when the outlook is bleak, try the uplook. I like that. Jesus said in Luke 21, 28, look up. Lift up your heads. Because your redemption draws near. Titus 2.13, Paul said, Look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Job speaks here about the penalty that falls upon man from God because of their sin. Verse 20, You prevail forever against him and he passes on. You change his countenance and you send him away. God reigns supreme. In his holiness against man. Man cannot stop the penalty of God's judgment because God is too great to overcome. God will always triumph. He will always get the victory over man. The penalty of sin is death. And that's why men die because of their sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin and death. If you work for somebody, 
you can expect to receive wages. Well, sin pays wages too. But its wages is death. God also pays wages. Holiness and everlasting life. Now back in the old life, in the old days, when we served the devil, boy, we produced fruit that was that we weren't ashamed of. We weren't ashamed of it. But in the new life in Christ, we produce fruit that glorifies God. It brings joy to our lives. We usually apply Romans 6.23 to the lost. The wages of sin is death. But it definitely does apply to the lost. But it also has a warning for the saved. You see, it was written to Christians. 1 John 5.17 says, There is a sin that leads to death. James says in 5.19 through 20, Brethren, notice, talking to Christians, If anyone among you wanders from the truth, what truth? The saving truth that's in Jesus Christ. If someone among you wanders from the truth and somebody turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Spiritual death in this life. This is what he's talking about. And from eternal death thereafter. You know, and some people think, some Christians say that, that well, well, you know, we can't wander away from God. We can't wander away from his, from his, from his saving truth. Well, Hebrews 2.1 says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. The writer there gave a warning about Christians drifting away. Verse 20 says, you change his countenance. Job says, you change his countenance. This refers to the change in appearance of a person when he dies. Death brings decay to the body. And then Job says, and God, you send him away after that. What Job is talking about here is they they went to Sheol in the Old Testament. That's where the Old Testament saints went when they died. The place of the dead. It had two compartments, the place of peace and the place of torment. We see that in Luke 16, 19 through 31. Job sees Sheol as a prison where you would go after you die and you would stay there forever. In Job's eyes, when somebody died, God removed him from the earth, stuck him in Sheol, and he never got out. But when Jesus Christ died and resurrected, the redeemed went to be with the Lord when they died. And that is not a place of unhappy imprisonment. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home, that is in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Verse 21, his sons come to honor and he does not know it. They are brought low and he does not perceive it. In other words, death takes, takes away a man's awareness of what happens, what's happening on the earth. Death takes away a man's awareness of what's happening on the earth. So when a man dies, he won't know about his sons coming to honor. Or if they're brought low. 
Because death shuts a man out from what's happening on earth. Heaven doesn't get the latest news on earth. You will be going to that world where you will be a total stranger to all things that affect man on this earth. The significance of this should should lessen our worries concerning our children and our families. God will know what comes of them when we're gone. So we need to commit them to God. To turn them over to his care and not, you know, burden ourselves with unnecessary, unproductive worry. They're in God's care. We need to pray for them. God loves them. Look at, look, in closing, look at verse 22. But his flesh will be in pain over it and his soul will mourn over it. This is a good picture of those who have made their choice to go to hell. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell. The penalty for sin is truly, truly painful. Outer darkness is common, is a common New Testament description of hell. John says in 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Light is a symbol of God's presence, and darkness symbolizes his absence. Hell is not only eternal darkness, but it's eternal torment as well. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. The weeping and gnashing of teeth signifies the unrelieved agony of severe pain, anguish, and torment. There's never any relief in hell from the pain, anguish, and torment, and of being separated from God's presence and his goodness, and that's forever. The punishment includes sightlessness, darkness, which means lack of sight. Hell is a terrible place. Not being able to see, I mean, that will make it so much worse than the sadness and the weeping. It is not a happy place. Hell is not comfortable. In chapter 10, verse 22 of Job, it says it's without order. It speaks of the chaos in hell. The disorderliness. And the scriptures tell us, Jesus, it wasn't made for man. It was made for the devil and his angels. But if people choose to reject Jesus Christ, God's offer of salvation, they will be joining the devil and his angels in hell for all eternity. On a, on a tombstone... In the Isle of Wight are these words. Man dieth and washes away. Yea, man giveth up the ghost. And where is he? Think about it. Would you like those words on your tombstone? Where is he? Where is she? Father, we come before you now and we thank you for your word, God. Father, we thank you for... This warning as well, God. Father, that hell is a terrible place. It's a real place. Jesus spoke of it. 
warned us about it. The Bible warns us about it, God. And Father, help us to take it seriously, God. Take it to heart. God, help us to take also, receive the great salvation, the great gift that God gave all mankind so that they don't have to go to hell. God sent his son to die on a cross to save us from hell. That we could go to heaven and spend eternity with Christ. But the Bible says you must repent. That is, change your mind about God and about sin. To change your direction, to go away from sin, to forsake sin. And draw near to God and continue an ongoing relationship with Him. And if that's your desire, and the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart, and you understand and you know, I I don't want to spend eternity in hell. I don't want to suffer the anguish and the pain and the torment. I don't want to be separated from God and all that is good. Then repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. Please cleanse me and wash me of all of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to follow you all the days of my life. And thank you, Lord, for saving me, for dying on a cross for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Awesome. If you said that prayer, you know, um, find a, a good Bible teaching church. Begin to read the scriptures and to pray and to share your faith with somebody. And uh, God, again, will, will do the rest. All right. Um, Sunday morning, again, remember, it's going to be a hot one. Um, the message on Sunday morning is the new man's nature and new life. And it's going to be in Ephesians 4, chapter 20 through 24. God bless you guys. Amen. Let's stand. Praise the Lord.